following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. All right, look up here if you would. Don't look at your Bible right now. Don't look at your sermon notes right now. Just look here. Say this with me out loud if you can. Are you ready? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good job. There you go. Matthew chapter 6, you just read it off, verses 9 through 15. Open your Bibles there, take your outline, and understand that we are studying wrongly titled the Lord's Prayer. It shouldn't be called that. God spoke it, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee during the Sermon on the Mount. If you're new with us, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Matthew recorded it. But it was not for him. It is not a prayer that Jesus would ever say, lead us not to temptation. Uh, And it is something that we're not to actually speak in rote to him. Make the today the very last time that you ever speak that prayer in liturgy. What we just did is not what he wants you to do. It was not given for that purpose. It was given as a prayer guide for disciples to follow, to help you line by line to show you how to pray. And friends, the Bible gives great evidence that prayer is effective, right? You'll hear even statements like James chapter 5 or 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And you see this, Abraham, his servant, prayed and Rebekah appeared. Hannah prayed and Samuel was born. Elijah prayed and there were three years of drought. He prayed again and then there was rain. But that's not the main reason for prayer. Prayer is designed by God for His glory and for your hearts to be in commune with Christ. Did you get that? And we miss that. We may get an idea of his glory, but we forget it's for our hearts to be in commune with Christ. In fact, the Bible is so clear about it being for his glory, he makes statements like this in John 14, 13, and whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Why? That the Father may be, any answer? Glorified. So when you get to understand the disciples' prayer, you will see very clearly, and we never want to miss the forest in the midst of the trees when we're expositing the text. The forest tells us very clearly that the very first thing in prayer is that you would focus on God. That you would focus and get your heart right with Him. And then you would talk about your specific needs. It's not wrong to talk about your needs, but the first thing in prayer is to focus on God his character, his name, his will, and then to talk about your specific needs as a believer this side of heaven. 
Understand this. Maybe you want to write this down. When God is given first place, then everything else that you're battling with will have its proper place. When God is given first place, everything you're struggling with, everything you're dealing with will have its proper place. Listen, prayer must never be an attempt to bend the will of God to our desire. But it should be prayer is our desire to submit our wills to the will of God. Did you get that? Understand, we're not trying to bend God's will. We're trying to submit to His will. And because we often lack the wisdom to pray, the Bible even tells us that God's going to help us. He helps you pray. Because when you pray, you're really putting yourself in dependence upon God. You're really relying on the Spirit of God. You're really entering into spiritual warfare, and you're going to be resisted when you try and pray. Some of you have a hard time praying because you say it's so hard. That's because you're being fought against. And you need to realize that you're in spiritual warfare, so God says in Romans 8.26, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us, with groanings too deep for words. When we don't know how to pray as we should, he helps us. And this is also somewhat what Paul meant in Ephesians 6.18 when he said pray at all times in the Spirit. God enables us. Concerning prayer, there is no description as to where to pray. In fact, last week it was to go into a closet. Why? So you're not showing off in your prayer. But really what you find in the New Testament is passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Pray in every place. Now I'm encouraged today because we have some Dr. Seuss decorations here. So let me just say this. You could pray in a box. You could pray with a fox. You could pray anywhere, right? It doesn't matter where you're at. You can pray in any way, in any fashion. In fact, the Lord doesn't even specify a time for prayer. He does say pray without ceasing, but if you want to schedule a time of prayer, if you want to put a P on your your hand and remind you that every time you see that, you wrote that on there, that, oh, I should be praying in the midst of conversations to pray, set your phone alarm to go off during the day, you go, why did I set that? Oh, to pray. Remind yourself to pray. It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter your posture, laying flat on the ground, sitting, kneeling, standing, it doesn't matter. In fact, this is how he starts this pattern of prayer. Don't call it the Lord's Prayer, call it the Disciples' Prayer, but it is a prayer guide for you. And number one in your outline is Jesus' God's plea for prayer. Your plea. Verse 9, he starts with pray then in this way. Now you don't realize this, but this prayer is filled with commands. Commands for you to pray, and this command is unique. The Greek language is very exact. And so when he commands you to pray, which is a command here, he actually uses a particular voice that says, you act upon yourself to pray. And what he's telling you is that you're going to have to be responsible to pray. God is sovereign, but he wants you to be responsible. Yes, share the gospel. Yes, serve others. Yes, fellowship on the patio. Yes, Be a great dad. Be an incredible mother. Be a wonderful husband, a wonderful wife. Be an incredible widow who worships him. Be a single who's on fire for him. Yes, do what God has called you to do. But in the midst of all that, you should what? Pray. Act upon yourself 
to pray. Train yourself to pray. You cannot leave here this morning after this passage and not two things. Pray more and pray according to the will of God more. Those two things. Because this is your guide in this very important section. And you want to start with a focus on God himself. God himself. Those first three charges are about God himself. So letter A in your outline, when you pray, begin with a focus on God. Start that way. Again, one more time. When God's in his proper place, then everything else will fall into place, right? So first, God's name, God's kingdom, God's will is coming here. So secondly, in your outline, God's person to pray to. God's person to pray to. He says, verse 9, Our Father who is in heaven. That's right. There's nothing biblically wrong with praying to Jesus or praying to the Spirit or singing praises, but the normal pattern of prayer in the New Testament is to pray to the Father in the name and because of the accomplishments of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. It needs to be empowered by God. It needs to be the Father. It needs to be through the Son. And that's the normal way of praying. And God is calling us to engage with our Heavenly Father, just reminding us that He is better than a great dad because He hears our prayers like a dad wants to hear his children. So by saying Heavenly Father, He's making a distinction between your earthly dad and your Heavenly Father. And by stating prayer should be directed to our Father in heaven, he's saying, look, let's expand and talk about God's glory, God's character, the totality of his attributes. Now here is, write it down, the very first thought when you go to prayer. The very first thing you're to think about, write it down, what is it? God's character. God's character. Here's the guide, and he says, our Father in heaven, he wants you thinking about God. As our Father, with all the resources of heaven, His love, His control, His wisdom ought to be first in our prayer. When you pray, remember who God is. God is different. He's better. He's greater than your earthly dad. He's our Father who's in heaven. He has all the resources of heaven. Is that a lot of resource? It's all the resources of the universe. He's greater in size and power and wonder than the universe, and yet he's our father that we're so intimate with, so intimate that the Bible actually calls him our Abba Father. What does Abba mean? It means daddy. It's that kind of intimacy. So write it down. When you go to prayer, you're trying to remember his infiniteness, his infinity, his, his incredibleness beyond us, and his intimacy. That he is the intimate and he is the infinite Father. So many Christians have forgotten what it was like when they first got saved and they came into God's presence. Because when you first got saved, you often came into his presence and you just communed with him. You rested. You need to recall this in your life. To commune with him, to be safe with him, to be loved by him. Recall his ability, that he has the ability to do anything consistent with his character. Remember his love for you and that he proved that love over and over and over again, but mightily through his son Jesus Christ. Remember his total control over every circumstance and every situation that you're battling with right now. And his wisdom that he never makes a mistake. He never says, oops. 
It's always that is exactly the best thing for you. So God's character, like His love, His control, His wisdom, ought to be first in our prayers. Our Father who in heaven. Again, this is a guide to prayer, not for you to repeat back, but for you to remember what He's saying to you so you recall who God is. He wants you to remember this. And remember, it's our Father. So as you're praying, you're remembering that we are his children and we can depend on each other to pray and sometimes we need to ask each other to pray for certain areas and undergird us in prayer because prayer is also us as his children under our great father. And beyond community, it's remembering that he is intimate with you. Our father, not as a sense of possessiveness, but of intimacy. And how did that intimacy happen? Remember the cost that he paid to make that prayer life possible. He actually was born as a man, suffered and died on the cross, bore the wrath of God for your sins upon himself, had no sin of his own, rose from the dead. And because of that sacrifice, things changed. See, Christ, in his earthly ministry, he referred to, and it shocked the Jewish populace at that time. It shocked them when he said, God is my father. But now, when we are in Christ, then we have the privilege because of his sacrifice to call him what? Our father, our daddy. That's what he provided for us. And that's what we remember in this first line of the disciples' prayer. It's to remind you when you pray, you remember who God is, that he has all the resources of heaven, that he is all-powerful, all-wise, loves you so much as family that you are as intimate as Abba, Daddy, Father. Number three in your outline, God's priority in prayer. God's priority in prayer is, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be your name. Now he's reminding you that God is great, our Father who art in heaven, but he's also now with hallowed be your name, reminding you that he is holy. He is unique. Hallowed meaning holy, pure, sinless, set apart, righteous. Hallowed be your name. Your name is who you are. It's the summation of who you are. Biblically, and it's basically descriptive of your character, and it actually forms your reputation. So, hallowed, your reputation be hallowed, that you are holy. God's name is all He is, His character, His plan, His will. So, when you pray, you're acknowledging that God is holy and always holy, always unique, always righteous, always. He hates sin, He loves righteousness. So, how do we do that? Are you ready? When you say, hallowed be your name, you're saying, I remember your gospel. I remember what happened so that an unholy person could now be in relationship with you. What happened? God being absolutely perfect, holy, already knew that you and I could never be perfect. Can I hear an amen to that? Never. God knew in our fallen, dead-natured rebellion, shaking our fist at heaven with no ability to respond to him, that we could not save ourselves. We could never be good enough. I don't care what religion you are, you can never be good enough to be right with him on your own. So a perfectly holy God sent his perfectly holy son to be born, the God-man, living a perfect life, then willingly offered himself to pay the price of death For your sins. 
Christ willingly chose to suffer the punishment that you deserve for your sins on the cross. And having no sin of his own, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he provided a way to make you perfectly righteous, holy, hallowed be your name. When you entrust your life to him by faith and turn from your sin and repentance, your sin is judged on Christ. So your sin falls on him when you entrust what he has done and who he is to you and his righteousness that can cover you with that pure white robe of righteousness. So now, when the perfectly holy God, hallowed be your name, looks at you, he doesn't see a vile, rebellious sinner that you are and that I am. He sees the righteous perfection of Jesus Christ because of what Jesus did. So when God genuinely then saves you, and not this pablum salvation that's going around today that's so popular. It's the one where he not only justifies you, but regenerates you at the same time, transforms you, giving you a new nature, the indwelling Holy Spirit, can cause you now to hate sin and love what? Righteousness. And the Spirit frees you from the penalty of sin, so you don't have to go to eternal torment in hell. And the power of sin, you can live uniquely different. And the Spirit will continue to prod you to turn from your sins and walk in holiness until you can then be free from the presence of sin in heaven forever. That's when you say, hallowed be your name, you're remembering that you were separate from God, that you are not holy and He is holy, and that you want to esteem His holiness. Hallowed be your name, you're saying, you're perfect, you hate sin. And you made me righteous, not because of what I did, but what you did. And now I love righteousness, and I want to live holy in such a way that pleases you. Are you getting it? Hallowed be your name. as a reminder for you of the gospel and what Christ did for you. And who he is in his perfection. Number four. God's program in prayer. Your, verse 10, kingdom, what? Come. Now, stay with me. What we've already covered so far we're helping you with your guide to prayer, right? And your guide to prayer is that, verse 9, pray this way. So remembering that your God is your infinite and intimate Father, with all the resources of heaven at His disposal, He can do anything consistent with His character. You pray recalling that God is holy and that Christ made you holy and gave you a heart that wants to live holy. And now, the next phrase will remind you of another truth. You pray wanting God's rule. Wanting God's rule. You know why? Because you and I are selfish. We think about ourselves all the time. And yet what God is trying to call you to is a submissive heart that wants God's will. You want your Lord to reign. We just saying crown him with what? Many crowns. That's because we want him to rule. Now, you're looking at your life, you're looking at America in the future, and I'm guaranteeing you, if you're a Christian, you want Christ to rule this planet, right? Are you with me as we decline? So understand, this is a submissive heart that wants God to reign. Now, in the most literal sense, when you say, your kingdom come, you're saying, Lord, I want you to subdue all your enemies, and I want you to establish your thousand-year rule where you reign the earth. That's going to be great. Can I hear an amen to that? But long ago, in the Old Testament, repeatedly, it's so many times in the Old Testament, it's almost crazy. The promise that God would send a king who would establish a kingdom, a kingdom on earth, in which righteousness would rule. 
And when you're praying to that end, when you want Christ to reign, Revelation 19 says, when the Lord returns, it says literally, he will reign. And we're going to reign with him. But until that time, what you want is for him to rule your life and all the people around you and all the circumstances around you. You want him to rule over your family. You want to bring your family under the authority of the Word of God. So you want to have Him rule our church. You want to pray that the elders would always seek the headship of Christ for our church. Not their will, but what Christ wants for our church. Because we want to see what it's like when God rules a community of people who are His children. And He is their Father. When you pray, you pray for a marriage that both husband and wife are saying, we want what God wants over what we want. And you're praying for a church where the elders submit to the headship of Christ and relationships and health problems and your trials. You want to see in all that you're dealing with that God would rule. That's the desire of a believer. So when you pray at this next line, your kingdom come, you're praying with a heart that wants to submit to his rule in your heart and all around you. Number five, God's plan in prayer. His plan Verse 10 is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is God's will being done in heaven? Yes. So he wants it to be done on earth. And so you want God's will over your will in everything. In fact, as you pray, this next line is to remind you that you want your will to conform to God's will not God's will to conform to your will. One more time. You want your will to conform to God's will, not God's will to conform to your will. You trust. Do you trust that God knows everything? Yes. That God is all-powerful? Yes. That God is good? Yes. That that He is all-wise, correct? And that He is providential and directing every circumstance in your life? Yes. Then, are you ready? Then you're praying. Your will be done. You believe that Father knows best, right? That in every situation that you're facing, you know who you are. Listen, friends, we're redeemed, but we're still a little bit messed up. We still kind of go our own way, do our own thing, and God says, look, trust me, because my will is perfect, and that's what you want. You want my will, and that's why it's so important that you know that God, in this phrase, in your guide to prayer, he's saying, like everything in heaven functions by God's will, he's saying, now in your life, you want everything on earth in your life to function by God's will. And again, we're selfish. We have little concerns over idols and little kingdoms in our lives and little wants. And Jesus is correcting this and, and loving us enough that our self-centered prayers would be God-centered. He loves us enough to say, this is what you want to pray. His will, not ours, because Father knows best. So where are you at? When you pray this, I've always noticed three responses in Christians that I've cared about, and that is this. They pray, thy will be done, but it's a defeated resignation. You know, okay, thy will be done, you know, right? And then there's the tone of bitter resentment. Yeah, okay, your will, fine. You know, knowing that they've got to submit. Or, it's the heart of trust. It says, I know who he is. I know he loves me. I know he intends for the best. And I'm going to trust that his will be done. Right? Where are you at? Letter B. Not only do you pray 
for God's priority and your orientation that sets everything into place. But now you pray your greatest needs, your greatest needs. So after a focus on God's glory, he's telling you now focus on your needs. What do you pray for? Daily bread, forgiveness, and protection from temptation. That's right. Temptation's rough. So there you go. So number six, God's provision in prayer. His provision. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. So he goes from the heights of heaven now to the regular needs of earth. You know, we're looking at God's will, God's greatness, God's character, aligning our wills with him, submitting to his rule, and now we're saying, here are my everyday basic needs. Now, we don't get this. He's talking to these people in the north shore of the Sea of Galilee on a beautiful slope. It's a gorgeous day. They're all hearing him. The acoustics are incredible. He's preaching this. When he says this to them, it's almost a gasp. Because in our society, we're not wondering what our next meal is going to be. Correct? We know, even if we're wondering about it, we know we can get it no matter what. We can borrow it somehow. That's not the case for them. If the rains didn't fall, if they couldn't bring their harvest in, sometimes it meant no food for them to eat. So when you're praying for your daily bread, you're saying, I'm trusting you even in the midst that I might starve. And interesting enough, that day-by-day struggle was very real for them. So some of the early church fathers in about the 4th century, they began to allegorize the Bible. It's a big mistake to do that. Take it in its normative sense, its literal sense. They began to allegorize, and so they came up with some really interesting views of eschatology. But they also reinterpreted portions of this Bible. So they would say daily bread here, and they would go, what he really meant was the Lord's Supper. What he really meant here was spiritual food of the word. What he really meant here was Christ, who is the bread of life. What he really meant here was spiritual bread from a heavenly kingdom. My friends, the Greek word bread means what? Bread! Okay? It's what you need for your bodily health. Now, you don't pray for my daily cake, all right? Or my daily wealth, or my daily expensive clothes, or my daily earthly mansion. But you pray for your true needs. Now, get this. It is not unspiritual, it's not fleshly, it's not less than best, it's not substandard to pray for your genuine needs. Go to him with your genuine needs. Sometimes God puts you in a situation and you have a physical need, and it's not a want, it's a need. God wants you to pray for that. And it's not unspiritual. He's saying, look, glorify me. By focusing on me in the first half of the prayer. But he's saying, glorify me by those genuine needs. Bring that to him. Bring that to him. God is the one who cares and takes care of our physical bodies. God is the one who supplies our need and what we need for today and tomorrow. God is the one who we're to look to for those needed supplies each day. And prayer is the vehicle. Amen? In fact, look at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. This is a passage you need to know. It's great for our society. It says this. Look at it in your outline. Give me neither poverty, neither what? Riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Now why? Not to be full, that I not be full, and deny you and say, who is the Lord? In other words, I'm so full, I got all I needed, and so I don't need God. That's our society right there. They don't need him. They got everything they need. Or, he says, that I be in want 
and steal and profane the name of God, saying, I'm so needy and so desperate and so starving. Why would God do this to me? Maybe I'm going to steal. He must be cruel. No, what he's saying is, here in the Lord's Prayer, again, each line is a reminder to launch you into prayer that would be pleasing to him is to remember your daily bread. Say, Lord, give me what I need to live. Write this down now so that I might live a life of gratitude towards you and generosity towards others. Gratitude toward you and generosity towards others. Which leads us to number seven, God's pardon in prayer. God's pardon in prayer, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, why are we asking the Lord to forgive our debts? Well, why the word debt? When you look at the cross-reference to this prayer and that phrase, in the book of Luke, chapter 11, verse 4, the word debt there is translated sins. So we've got a pretty strong idea that debt is referring to sins. And secondly, we know that the way that God looks at sin is that sin is a debt. Secondly, so what Christ wants you to feel as you're praying this is the weight of your debt. He wants you to remember what God did and how much God paid and that payment must be resolved and that ledger must be made right and the debt of sin must be paid and you, are you ready? You cannot pay the debt. You can't do it. In fact, you owe God your complete obedience, but you and I failed and became debtors. And as God is your creditor, sadly, you and I are up to our ears in debt spiritually. Are you with me on this? That's how much we owe. You thought the national economy was bad. Well, your spiritual economy is absolutely in crisis. It's already in depression. Are you with me on this? You thought that Bidenomics was bad. Look at your own spiritual economy, your own heart within you, and you will find out, Andy, that Andynomics is a desperate bad idea. Right? It's devastating. Uh, some of you, your Beckynomics are not going to cut it. You're basically in a disaster. Now, let me illustrate it this way. Some of you have been in financial debt before. Maybe it's credit card debt, maybe student loans, uh, maybe overspending, and you're embarrassed. You didn't want to tell anybody. And until you actually took root of that and took ownership of that and maybe shared some people and got help, it, it was only getting worse. But every one of us in this room either was or is in spiritual debt. And until you confess Christ, and relinquish your life, and surrender your life, and exchange all that you are for all that he is, it's only going to get worse and may lead to eternal torment. That spiritual debt is devastatingly big. And here's the point. As you remember this line, as you say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, then you're reminded that first, Christ paid our debt in full. Amen? All of it. Secondly, that we're still in a war against remaining sin. Thirdly, that those who've been genuinely forgiven never neglect to confess, to agree with God that sin is wrong, to repent of it, even though it's all been forgiven. Relationally, we want to be right with him. And fourth, those who understand the weight of your debt, those who are forgiven much, what happens? They forgive much. They forgive much. And Jesus is saying, when you pray, remember your debt. Now, here's the point. When you remember 
your millions of sins that were forgiven you. It's so much easier when you feel the full weight of that to actually forgive the one or two or three sins that somebody committed against you. Are you with me? You need to recognize the millions of sins that God has cleansed you from that were opposed to Him so that you would then go, you know what, it's not that big a deal and I should be moved to forgive those who've sinned against me. Take a look at Luke chapter 7, verse 47. Own this verse. It says, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, what? Loves little. If you don't understand the weight of your forgiveness, that amazing grace in forgiving you for millions of sins, then you won't be helped to forgive others who've sinned against you once. You know, you and I would know nothing of incredible peace, incredible cleansing, incredible love, incredible intimacy, and incredible forgiveness and protection and guidance if it were not for the salvation we've been given, the grace that we've been given, the forgiveness we've been given by our Father through the Son. But when we experience that complete and total Forgiveness, when we realize the weight and the debt of our sin in our vertical relationship with God, then it gives us almost like a, it's like a healing power in our horizontal relationships that we would actually make us able to forgive others for the sins that they've committed against us. And that's what he's saying. Forgive us our debts as we have what? Been forgiven. Do you know what the word forgiveness means in this context? As an expositor, I sometimes do little happy dances when I discover things. This was one. The word forgiveness in this context means, are you ready? To send away. Isn't that a great picture? God, when he said it is finished, his children, their sins are sent away. And they're not sent away to the north or the south because that has a terminus. It's sent as far as the what? East is from the west, which means it never stops. It never, it goes away. It's sent away. Your ledger has been made clean. Your debt has been paid. Jesus said, it is finished. When that hits you, then can you not forgive those who sin against you? That's an amazing truth, is it not? I mean, he just told us about you know, asking for bread and asking for our daily needs. But you know what's scary is if we're eating all this bread and we're getting all fat, it's going to mean nothing if we don't recognize that he's forgiven us and that comes in Christ and that we should forgive one another. It's really just fatness is up for the slaughter. <laughs> That's literally what it is. We need to recognize what God has put into place here. Number eight, God's protection in prayer. God's protection. You need protection in prayer. You say, how? Well, he says in verse 13, and do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need the forgiveness of past sins. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But also, God desires for you to then pray that he would provide the ability to escape from temptations we face right now, from the enemy, from the world, from our own flesh. He's saying, look, when you live in this life, that's why this is a prayer that Jesus would not pray himself. This is not his battle. 
But that's our battle. And you know, apart from God's saving grace and salvation, and the inner dwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we would give in every single time to the wiles of the devil, to the pressure of this world and its idolatry and its, its offerings to us, and idol worship, etc. And even our own flesh that works against us, our memory of sin. God told us, that we can grow in holiness, that He does not tempt us, but we are in the midst of being tempted by the world, by the enemy, and God does not tempt us, but He's going to subject us to these temptations so that we would grow strong. We're going to face satanic assaults, worldly pressures, fleshly independence, and He's saying, I want you to pray. When you pray, when you go to prayer, you never forget that you have dangers from sin right now. Even though you're cleansed and forgiven, you still are battling sin. And you know what sin is. It's missing the mark of God's holiness and her perfection and the target of God's character. It's stepping over the fence of God's no trespassing signs. It's slipping on the icy roads of this world. Sin is violating God's law. Sin is the failure to pay the debt of obedience that we owe God. And until heaven, you and I are battling with sin, where sin is going our own way, doing our own thing, pursuing our will over God's will, pursuing our desires over God's desires, and yet in the midst of this battle with sin, until heaven, what's he promise? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you in your outline there, but such as is common to man. It's very common. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. Now, God is promising that you will be tempted. It's not that you're praying that somehow, Lord... Keep me from being tempted. Because we know even the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. This is part of His plan. It's part of His plan to have us suffer the, the testing of temptation for us to grow strong. But we're praying now that we would not succumb to temptation. Temptation is not sin. And so we're asking not to give in to temptation. Don't abandon us in our temptation. We're praying this prayer of utter dependence of God's providence, God's power, God's protection. Uh, let me put it to you this way simply, okay? I like simple. This is a weak person praying to a strong God. Are you with me? And you're saying, I need you every single moment of every single day. Amen? That's what you're saying. Until heaven, we're in this battle. Look at verse 13. Temptation is one thing. We're in this. We're asking God, you know, don't let me get consumed by the testing of fire. Don't let me in these testings that are causing me to grow strong, to be burned out. But temptation is one thing. And evil is another. He says, let us lead me not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And evil is the evil one. He's talking about this deliverance, and deliverance is a, a, an aggressive verb. It's to snatch you away. You're saying, Lord, snatch me away from the wiles of the devil. Snatch me away from this evil world. Snatch me away from my evil flesh. You know what healthy prayer is? What he's saying here, this line is to remind you of a portion of Scripture that you should never forget. Ephesians chapter 6, that you're praying and never forget that every single day until you get to heaven, you are in spiritual warfare. And friends, you're sitting here today, and I guarantee you, you forget. Would you admit it? We forget. 
We have a comfortable culture. We forget that we are in a war. And the bullets are flying. And it's real. It's a spiritual warfare. So when you pray, you get your focus on God. Letter A. Letter B, you get your genuine needs out there, that you're in a war, you need your daily bread, you need God's help to deal with this. And then number nine, the preeminence in prayer. Letter C, when you pray, you focus on your priorities, and that's the preeminence in prayer. And that's this odd ending that was added by a scribe later in order to tack on a doxology, verse 13b. What's it say? Yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. It's a wonderful way to end the prayer. Uh, it's a beautiful doxology. The words are biblical. They're found in First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. But the words are not found in the thousands of earliest and best manuscripts. They were added later by some scribe, but they were not found in the early ones, so we know it doesn't belong in the text. That means the Lord's Prayer ends with evil. It ends with that, deliver us from evil. And that evil ending is reminding us that how evil it is when we don't forgive one another. And that leads us to number 10, God's postscript in prayer. His postscript. He says this, For if you forgive others of their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Write this down. This is talking about relational forgiveness. Can you, Christian, lose your forgiveness from God? Yes or no? No! Okay, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to His riches and grace. There is no condemnation for someone who is in Christ, Romans 8.1. Yet scripture teaches that our loving Father disciplines us and when we are lack of forgiving others, then he will spank us from time to time because we're to confess our sins in order to have that day-to-day cleansing. Hear with me. Hear what I'm saying. This type of forgiveness is a simple washing from the worldly defilements of sin that we experience this side of heaven. It is not a repeat of the wholesale cleansing from sin's corruption that comes with salvation. Let me put it to you simply, because I like that. And that's this. This kind of forgiveness is washing the dirt off of your feet as you walk in a disgustingly sinful world. It's not getting the whole bath of salvation all over again. He's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about your relational forgiveness. And this type of forgiveness is what God threatens to withhold from Christians in verses 14 and 15 when they refuse to forgive others. Relational forgiveness. Maintaining an attitude of forgiveness towards others is necessary for you to enjoy an unhindered personal intimacy with the Almighty God in prayer. Are you getting this? If we withhold forgiveness from someone, from people who hurt us, in our horizontal relationships then God will withhold the same in our vertical relationship with Him. Not salvation, but fellowship. You're not going to change your family status, but you're not going to be close to the Father. Are you tracking with me? Not salvation by God, but fellowship with God. It is impossible for you to be in fellowship with God as long as you harbor an unforgiving heart towards others. Let me say it again. It is impossible for you to be in fellowship with God as long as you harbor an unforgiving heart towards others. 
Let me give you a side thought. We're going to partake in communion today. When we get to the tent, and it's just now months away, very close, we're going to have communion every week. We enjoyed that before. We're going to enjoy it again. Here's why. Because communion is God's love forcing us to make sure we're right with him, and it's forcing us to make sure we're right with each other. When you partake in communion, you must examine your own heart and make sure there's nothing between you and your father. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, you must make sure that you're right with your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, make it right. Otherwise, go make it right. Don't partake in communion. Make that right. And then come back and partake in communion. The danger is, he actually says that some are sick. Some even died in the Corinthian church because they partook in an unworthy manner. They didn't examine this vertical relationship or this horizontal relationship. You say, boy, that's pretty harsh on God. You know what I think? I don't think it's harsh at all. I think it's the most loving thing that God could do. You say, why are you saying that, Chris? Because I don't know about you, but I drift. Does anybody here drift? You're not as intense or as focused as you need to be in the Lord, and you get enamored with other things, and God loves me enough to say, Chris, when you take communion, I want you right with me, and I want you right with your brothers. And if he didn't put that in place, I wouldn't do it. Anybody else with me? That's, that's what I call love. He loves me that much. The Lord's postscript on prayer is reminding you to make certain there is no unconfessed sin that exists between you and your God and that there is no undealt with sin that exists between you and a brother or sister in Christ, especially forgiveness. You getting it? So let's take it home. Ready? This is your prayer example, letter A. This is your guide. This is your sample to prayer. This is your pattern to follow. This is how you pray. This is to motivate you to pray. It's good. It aligns your heart with Him. Man, do all kinds of things to remind yourself to pray. Put the P on the hand. Uh, you know, letter P, remind you to pray. Put it, you know, 12 o'clock, your phone goes off, you pray. You know, whatever you have to do. Do the Acts Acrostic, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. It doesn't matter, but use this exactly the way God intended as a guide for you to pray in a way that pleases him. He said, teach us to pray. So he said, pray this way. Not to rote, say this prayer, but to use it as a line-by-line reminder of how to pray in a way that pleases him. Our Father, he's our Father who art in heaven, has all the resources of all of heaven. Hallowed be that he's holy and I'm not, and yet he made me holy. It's all those truths are swimming around, and he's reminding you, this is how you pray. Letter B, this is your prayer plea. Your prayer plea, submit to him. See, why do you say that? This prayer calls you to see God correctly. You're to be broken under your sin, dependent on God moment by moment, not just for your salvation, but for everything, to submit to his rule, to follow and desire his will. Understand this, Christian. The Lord only hears prayers that are in Christ. Somebody will say, what about salvation prayer? If you're having a salvation prayer, it's he's already drawn you to himself, already awakened you. It's that it's in Christ at that particular moment. It's only in Christ. No other religion, no other faith, no other leader. It's only through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. No prayers are heard except through Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. That's what he calls us to. And that you know what that means? If you're going to have prayers that are heard, 
then you have to be in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge of this passage. We pray that we truly might be a people who walk with you and depend on you and focus on you and remember your will and your holiness and your relationship with us and your greatness and that we remember our needs and our desperate desire to be right with you and to function under your authority of your word and to deal with sin and ask you to help us with future sin and thank you for the sins that have been washed away and made us right with you. We pray that if there's anyone who doesn't know you personally and intimately in Jesus Christ, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would awaken their heart, and that they might know new life in you. And we'll give you all the glory for what you do. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. And we can always count on you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.